This morning, I'm going to address a subject that is perhaps the most controversial subject in all of Christianity. This subject has been pondered and studied for the last 1,500 years of church history. And I don't come to it as I know it all, and I don't come to it lightly. But I see it as a matter of life and death. And so the question for us this morning in the second of lessons on Mythbusters is the question of what has come to be known as the security of the believer. Unconditional security. Question mark. Once saved, always saved. Eternal security. However you may hear it referred to, it's an issue the church has debated and continues to debate. I would offer you a uh, definition, please, that I think is very true to the heart of what this so-called doctrine renders. Unconditional security can be described as a widely held doctrine that suggests that once I accept Christ as my Savior, there is nothing I can do to lose that salvation. I can behave any way I want, commit any sin I see fit, and I'm going to heaven anyway. Once saved, always saved, is the mantra of this doctrinal position. I believe and I'm rather convinced that the Holy Scriptures cast doubt on this concept of unconditional eternal security. This belief does not come to me in an effort just to be controversial or just to preach something different. I have come to this position perhaps in all my 26 and a half years of pastoring and my years prior as a college student and a graduate student in seminary, etc. Perhaps no other stu- study I've done with greater depth and detail, because to me it's a matter of life and death. Other than the study on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I've spent more time over the years on this teaching or subject or myth. I come to you to tell you that I don't have a denomination I want to beat up. I don't have anybody I want to run off from the church. Because the devil told me when the Holy Spirit gave me this lesson for today in this series, aren't you trying to build a church and raise money? Don't you believe you ought to leave that alone? And the Holy Spirit told me, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I didn't come. God didn't raise me up as a preacher to build buildings alone and to break tithe records and to build a mega church. He called me to build the kingdom of God. And so I come to you this morning and I want to be sensitive to several thoughts. One of which is I don't want, by teaching this, to keep anybody out of the kingdom of heaven for whom Jesus died. When I pray, I said, God, don't let my preaching be so hard and my stands be so tough until I keep people out of the kingdom for whom you desire to go. 
But my, my other, the counterpart of that is, I don't want to give anybody license or permission into the kingdom by allowing them to believe that they can live like they want to and do like they want to and still make the kingdom when, when they end up on that day of judgment and God says to them, sorry, I never knew you. So I move forward by saying to you, this subject begs at least two questions. I hope to address them this morning. If I don't get to the second one, we'll do it next week. The first question is this. Does man play any role in obtaining salvation? Or is it entirely God's doing? The second question would be this. Is it possible for one to lose his salvation? And those of you who take notes, we'll look at those questions again. So if you don't get to know them all right now, let me just go immediately into it. Let, let me talk to you about, does man, man or woman, do we as individuals have responsibility to salvation? Or does God just save who he wants to and, and it's all by random and, and maybe you're one of those random choices and, and maybe you're not? Do you have a part to play? And I take you then to our text in John chapter 15, where the Lord Jesus says in verse number one that he is the vine and that we are the branches and that God is the vine dresser or the gardener. If that's the word, can I get an amen? The picture then is clear. Each of us can visualize it. Any good gardener knows that there are two things that need to happen if you're going to have healthy plants. If you're going to have healthy plants, you must remove dead branches. And if you're going to have healthy plants, you must prune or cut back healthy ones in order to produce more. You see, a fruit-bearing branch, when pruned properly, will bring more fruit. Can I get a witness? It's not just true for fruit. It's, fruit. it's true for other kinds of plants. My wife has an affinity to roses, and she loves roses, and she loves a lot of kinds of roses. And so we got a lot of roses around the house. And, but, but once a year or so, and especially as the weather begins to change, about midwinter, uh, we have somebody come in and, 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 uh, and have pruned all these roses. And they're these kind of, uh, uh, what are they? The red ones are called, they bloom about two or three times a year. Knockout, yeah, yeah. Is that all right, knockout, yeah. They kind of knock you out kind of roses, you see. And it's amazing to me, I, I'm amazed about it, because we kind of we prune them down to the nub almost. And, and, and by the end of summer, which is about now, they're still knocking out, but they're everywhere. You understand? It's, it's a kind of way of how things work in nature, and it's a kind of way of how things work in the spirit world and with Christians. Every once in a while, I know for me, God's got to do some pruning and some cutting because some things try to graft itself on and attach itself to me that God says, this is not for you. And so I come to understand and appreciate that what we have here is an allegory of the spiritually dead. Because what we understand, if you will, is God provides the fruit, but only through healthy branches. And so I would say to you that the allegory is that the unfruitful Christian is the person who claims the name of Jesus Christ, but is still living in willful sin. 
Now, please understand that I know that all of us sin even after we're saved, and God will help us if we confess that sin, okay? Uh, There is none righteous even after you're saved. We slip, we fall, we fumble, we do things we shouldn't do, and we got to keep coming back to the Lord. But I'm talking about willful knowledge of the Word of God, willful knowledge of the truth, willful knowledge of what it takes to be born again, and having that knowledge, going on and living in apostasy. The habitual practice of him or her that knows to do good but does not do it, James says, it's a sin. And the Word of God says that every soul that sinneth, it shall die. But I, I, I'm not saying that, that you could just lose your salvation just like that. I'm, just, I'm not just saying you could get an anger attack or you, have a, you, you use foul language because you got angry, you did something you shouldn't do, and all of a sudden you're going to bust hell wide open. God is gracious. He is able to keep us safe. And the Holy Ghost will, will speak to our hearts and say, you shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have looked at that. You shouldn't have gone there. Go apologize. Read the Bible. The Holy Ghost is here to keep bringing us back. Amen? But I'm talking about knowing the truth and doing error is where the problem comes in. And and so I would say to you that that these who are uh, spiritually dead are those who pretend to be religious, but never receiving Christ as their Savior. Please let me observe for my text again. Jesus said, if you will, in verse number three, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Once you have given your heart to Jesus Christ... He does the cleansing. Can I get an amen? And when we come to communion in a little while after I bring you the word, it's another time to do another cleansing if we need to. You are already clean, Jesus says, because of the word I've spoken to you. Meaning I have granted you salvation upon the admission of your sin and the repentance of your sins through my shed blood and your faith in me, Jesus says. I have already made you clean. Now, your responsibility, because we do have have a responsibility is to abide in the vine. God says, I provided salvation. I've let you come in, but it's up to you whether or not you are going to remain or abide in me. Can I get an amen by faith here? You see, I've come to understand and appreciate the task that remains is one that if we are going after we are born again to bear fruits of righteousness... We then must elect to continue to walk in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Because the Scripture teaches in verse 4, one cannot bear fruit unless they remain in Jesus. Jesus' emphasis on remain is rather intentional. What he is saying is, we play a role on whether or not we stay saved. Just like God won't drag anybody into the kingdom who don't want to be, He won't cause anybody to stay in the kingdom who doesn't want to be. God hasn't made us robots. He's given us this wonderful gift and made us free moral agents where after hearing the truth of our gospel and being convicted of our sins, we freely say, God, I give you my heart, wash away my sins, I want to be in your kingdom. 
But in the process of serving God, as the months and years unfold, we can also be tempted by the devil, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Satan can revisit the body he once possessed. And if he sees it vacant of the presence of God, he can move back in. And our latter stage, according to Jesus, can be worse than our former. We have a responsibility. I wasn't going to yell. You should see Lakeland preach like his daddy. Our grandson, he yells like crazy. I don't know where he gets that. Uh, Now, Hebrews chapter 10. And you can go there if you will, but let me put it on the screen for you to save time. Do we have a responsibility? Do we play a role in our salvation? Well, this is what the writer of Hebrews says in verse 22 of chapter 10. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Look at this. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith or our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, comma. I didn't put a 25th verse on there, but let me read it to you. Verse 25 of Hebrews 10, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Please, if this teaches anything... It teaches where I have in verse 22 and verse 23 and 24, it says, underlined, let us draw near. You, let, let me tell you, all you want to, you, you, can, you can go to the finest restaurant. You can have somebody pay your tab. You can order the most expensive steak and have the best soda money can buy. <laughs> That's the reason why I use that, but anyhow, um, And somebody else cover it. But if you don't pick up your fork and pick up your knife and cut into that steak and bring that food to your mouth, you ain't going nowhere with an appetite satisfied. You have a responsibility. Let us draw near. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast. Give me a witness, somebody. Oh, my, my, my. I, I, I come here to tell you that, that I've got my brother's hand and he's got mine here for a moment. And, and, and we are maybe walking through a treacherous place. Maybe a place of cliffs and precipice, okay? But we got each other. But any time I want to, if I just want to do my own thing, and I just mentioned my, my our grandson Lakeland, he's 20 months, he's hit the twos before the twos have come. Because now he's testing every border there is. Anytime I want to turn loose his hand and say to him, I know this path, I know this trail, bless God, I don't need you. I'll meet you at the end of the trail because some of the way you want to go, I don't want to go. Some of the things you want me to do, I don't want to do. And I'm tired of you leading me on your trail. And I can just turn loose. And human experience tells me as a pastor of 26 and a half years, I could fill this church twice with the people who backslid over the 36 years this church has been in existence. We wouldn't suffer 
for churches to be filled in America if we didn't win another sinner but got back all the backsliders that turn loose of the hands of God and faith in God and like Demas and Judas and Ananias and Ananias and Sapphira and others in the Bible, they did not hold fast. I have a responsibility to draw near. I have a responsibility to hold fast. I have a responsibility to stir up. Let us first want to consider one another in order to stir up good works. Oh, my God, help me this morning. The devil's always stirring up. Come on and help me here. And if you don't, you don't quench that spirit of the devil, he's he, he liable to stir you up against me. Because of what I'm preaching here. Because, see, a lot of folks, they only want the cream and the cherry on top of Christianity. Yeah. Uh, a lot of folks are really uncomfortable with, with this kind of preaching. Uh, let, let, let me see if I can. The, the consequences of separation. Can I lose my salvation? John 15 and 6. I text. It says, if anyone does not abide in me, remain in me. He is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, I will say this to you. I have no person's name in my head or face in my mind. But verse 6 causes problems for those who support the idea of unconditional eternal security. Once saved, always saved. This verse causes big problems. The problem arises, arises in the language Jesus uses in this verse. Three thoughts here, but let me just give it to you. His language is harsh. It prophesies judgment. Harsh language prophesies judgment, does it not? If anyone doesn't abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire. And, and, and thirdly, not only is it harsh, it prophesies judgment, but it promises destruction by fire to those who do not remain in him. Again, I do not want to be coming across as some kind of arrogant, legalistic teacher. Many folks don't like the hard sayings of the Bible. Jesus, when he fed the multitudes and had fish and chips for everybody, they came from everywhere. When he served the fish and chips, man, they got in their own boats and went to the other side of the lake to find him. Maybe they'd... Maybe he'd have grits and taters or whatever. That don't go together, does it? When I first came to America, never heard of grits. They asked me if I wanted any. I said, I would like one, please. And I'm only teasing. That is not anointed. It's just sidelined. You remember Jesus? But he started teaching. He started doing this controversial stuff. If you're going to live, you got to die. If you want to win, you got to be last. Uh, you got to crucify your flesh. You got to take up your cross and follow me. Uh, all the stuff about crucify, taking up cross, you got to give in order to receive. <laughs> I think we'll go back to somebody else got fish and chips. It appears that you don't. And the Bible says in John 6, they, they left him by the droves because of his hard sayings, they thought. And Jesus even turned to his most intermediate 
or intimate, I should say, his most intimate followers, disciples, and said, would you leave me also? But they had revelation. They said, to whom shall we go? Even if your words are hard, only you have the words of life. Hasn't changed. I say this to you uh, to tell you that uh, when preaching comes like this, some folks are kind of wiggling their seat and they start looking for the exits. And and, uh, some people kind of... And then there are other folks when words come like this, it, it causes them to twist and turn the text to suit their theology instead of matching their theology to the text. A book entitled Life in the Sun, S-O-N, Life in the Sun, written by Robert... Shank, S-H-A-N-K, is an extraordinary book. And, and this is what Robert Shank says in his book, Life in the Sun. He says, those who advocate the doctrine of unconditional security have found themselves hard-pressed to interpret John 15, 1 through 6. He goes further to say, regarding their comments on this brief passage, one is continually reminded of the words on the sign over the old ironsmith's shop. The words over the old iron shop says, All kinds of fancy twistings and turnings done here. There would be those who would take this book and do the same. I, I might give you the comments of one Alexander McLaren, who was a noted Baptist preacher and expositor of yesteryear. But he says this about the truth of the word. I quote him, he says, Dear brethren, Be on your guard against the tendency of this generation to blot out the threatenings of the Bible and from its consciousness the grave issues that it holds forth. He goes on to say, One of two things must befall the branch. Either it's in the vine or it gets in the fire. If we would avoid the fire, let us see to it that we are in The vine. Oh, somebody help me here. And so I I go to the question, please. Does man have a responsibility? Can he lose his salvation? And I ask you to consider the text. And to put it simple, if you ain't in the vine, you in the fire. Pardon the grammar, but that is the the lesson. I, I, I move further. To give you Hebrews 20, 10 and 26. And you might want to turn there. But I, I say to you what the writer says about this subject. About our salvation. Are you there with me? Say amen. amen. If, if You can even look on the screen. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. This is an affirmation of what Jesus teaches in John 15. And I bring that to your attention because I would have you to know that there are serious dangers of turning back. There's a life and death danger of having followed Jesus, having your sins washed away, been born again, having your name in heaven's book and walking the right path and serving God and then deciding one day that I don't need this anymore and I'm not going to serve God and I'm just going to go and sin. And by the way, I'm okay and I'm covered. God is a God of grace. God's a God of love and all these other kind of things. And God won't send anybody to hell. And I know he and I got our own little thing working so I can just do whatever I want to do. I'm going to heaven anyhow. There's a terrible, terrible life. 
life and death danger in that. And I'll show you from the Word of God. The danger of turning back is, number one, turning back forfeits forgiveness of sins. Somebody say amen if you know that that's... Here's what I would have you to see. The Bible says in verse 26 of Hebrews 10, There remaineth no more sacrifice for sins for those who are apostate, who are practicing sin as a habitual lifestyle, already knowing the truth. You see, the Word of God says when a person rejects the one sacrifice for sin, there remains no more sacrifice. Give me another amen, somebody. God is not going to send another son to die for our sins as long as we keep sinning. He has not created another son for that purpose. Jesus is not going to climb up the cross again and die on the cross a hundred or a thousand or a million times regarding how many times we sin. That's not God's plan. Once and for all, the sinless sacrifice of God's spotless son was offered that we might be saved. And so what we do is when we keep on sinning, we forfeit the forgiveness of sins by saying, I'm okay, God. My plan for spirituality is better than yours. I hasten to tell you, number two, that turning back guarantees severe judgment. In verse 27, the Bible says, But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. The person or persons who reject Jesus Christ after receiving a full knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ makes him or herself God's enemy. And therefore, for a person who turns back, there is something that does not remain and there's something that does remain. For a person that turns back, the something that does not remain is a sacrifice for sin. The thing that does remain for a person who turns back is judgment. I say this about the Word of God because I don't want to insert anything in here that is not there. But perhaps you've turned out there already, and I'm trying to hurry here. In Hebrews 10 and verse number 27. The Bible says, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation will devour the adversaries. There are three things about this judgment that will come upon those who willfully and deliberately keep practicing sin and thinking they're saved. The first of is the judgment is certain. It's not my words, it's the word of God. Verse 27, but a certain judgment. How many know certain means it's going to happen? It's definite. It's certain. And the Bible says that this judgment that will come upon those who turn back on God, knowing the truth, is a terrifying judgment. But a certain and fearful expectation of judgment is not only a certain judgment and a terrifying judgment, but thirdly, the judgment that comes upon those who willfully turn back on God and continue to practice sin thinking they're saved. The Bible says that judgment is much more worse than the judgment that was under the old covenant of Moses. Let me teach for a moment more. Everybody, if you're not there and you have a Bible, go in your Bible to Hebrews 10, please. And I want you to see something here in verse number 28. Hurry if you're not already there. But let me read verse 28. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In Moses' day, look at me just a moment, please. You couldn't just put anyone to death because somebody off of some place said, I saw him do that. Also, you had to have at least two witnesses, eyewitnesses, who could validate and verify the fact that that person was guilty of the crime, especially capital crime. And then the Word of God says that was the Old Covenant. Verse 29. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy of who has 
trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. Listen to this, please. Punishment under the old covenant for violating the law and certain attributes of the law was physical death. Physical death by the affirmation and witness of at least two testimonies, two witnesses. The Word of God says, for those who turn back, knowing the truth, practicing sin, and defying the invitations of the Holy Spirit to return and repent and cease from sin. How many know the Holy Spirit won't just invite us to cease from sin, but He'll give us the power to do it? How many know God never asks us to do anything whereby with He will not give us the power to do it? Thank you, Jesus. If you got a situation of pornography, God the Holy Ghost will convict you. And when you confess and repent of it, He'll give you the power to do it. But then you've got to go and unsubscribe from pornography. You've got to stay away from that clicking that button. You've got a responsibility of making sure you don't go in front of that TV or rent that video or do anything else like it. You have a responsibility in staying pure. Or you bring more judgment on yourself. Nobody, same is true for adultery, fornication, having sex outside of marriage. Oh, God, help me here. I want you to go to heaven. I, I want you to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. I want you to see, I want to see you on the streets of gold. And I don't want you to, I don't, I don't, I don't want any of you here this morning. When after you thought you were saved and Jesus says, sorry, I never knew you. I don't want any of you to have to say, but I went to church, I tithed, I gave in the offering, I sang in the choir, I was an elder, I was a pastor. Yes, pastors. Yes, pastors. Because no, none of we pastors are yet glorified. Uh huh, feel a whoop glory. Be sure that your God is not your pastor. Or your TV evangelist. Or your prayer tower partner. Oh, God, help me, Jesus. When I pray over you, I ask God, I want you to like me. I even want you to love me. But when I pray over this church, I say, God, let them fall in love with Jesus first. I want the best music we can provide, and you got that this morning. I want the best children's ministry we can provide, and they're getting that now. And we'll get better. I want the best nursery for our kids. I want the best youth program. The youth had a revival this week called Irrigate. Almost every night they had over 200 youth in the service. Many got born again. I want the youth to be on fire for God. I want to have the best outreach. I want to have the best Joseph storehouse, the best recovery house. I want to have the best missions program that we can have. But the thing I want more than anything else is not for you to love, fall in love with South Metro Ministry or Alan Matura or a choir or a choir pastor. I want you to fall in love with Jesus Christ, your Savior. Nobody else died for you. Nobody else shed their blood for you. Nobody else hung in shameful ignominy and died for your sins. I want you to love Jesus. You get mad at me, but you'll get over it. But don't get mad at God. <laughs> oh, I feel a hallelujah coming on. Where was I before I started yelling? I'm telling you, in the old covenant, two witnesses had to provide enough evidence for a person to die. The Bible says for those who turn away, the penalty is not just physical death, it's eternal death. 
I, I must go on and not leave out any of the word of God because I, I don't want you to have a partial. Look, look at verse 30. For we know him who said, him, capital H, God. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Pastor, isn't God a God of love? You are absolutely 100% unequivocally correct. God is a God of love. But don't leave out justice. Because, you see, uh, in, in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One of the sermons, and I ain't going to tell you when that is because you might stay away. One of the sermons on the series is, I told my wife I'd use this title, but she cringed. I thought I'd use the title, Hell Yes. <laughs> like, Hell Yes. So I'm not going to use that title. But yes, there is a hell. There's a myth that you'll be there with your buddies drinking beer and smoking cigarettes and partying and having a grand old time. You ain't, pardon me, anybody going to hell will have no buddies. Okay, there will be no buddies. You will be playing volleyball on the beach and texting your buddy in southern hell. No. See, see, here I go, a serious sermon I've just thrown. I don't mind you getting a little humor out of that, but that's about all. I don't want you to turn back. I don't care how far you've gone, how long you've been there, come home today. You, you might have slept with somebody other than your spouse last night or somebody you ain't married to. You might have shut up your veins, shut up your, shut up your chest. You might have shut up uh, with, with drink. You might have filled your body with all kind of junk. You might have hung out. Come home today. Come home today. But I've been, I've come back a thousand times, Pastor. Come back a thousand one. Now that you know the truth. Stay away from judgment. You, you know why? Come, come, if you will, brother. You know why why this turning back is so dangerous? Because it insults God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Please look in your Bibles. Please look as I try to bring this to a close. Verse number 29. Are you there? Say amen, please. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he who thought worthy, who has, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. I close with these thoughts. When we sin against truth, God's word, we insult God. Because God is the one who provided salvation. When we continue to practice sin and call ourselves a Christian, we insult Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who shed his blood. In a moment, in a moment... We will take one of these cups and we will lift them up. And they represent the blood. Jesus said as often as you do this, this, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. He said, this is the blood of the new testament. And every time I willfully sin, I, I, I insult the blood of I make it. I make his blood seem worthless. Can I get an amen here? And then, then he says, I insult the Holy Spirit. Because it's the Holy Spirit who drew me back to the Lord. 
I'm saying to you this morning. And I will, I will cover the rest of these thoughts next week if, if the Lord needs me there. I'm saying to you this morning, let's don't take lightly somebody we love and care for who are out in sin and they kind of just barely show up at church and they come on Mother's Day, a funeral and Christmas. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, the Bible says. And even so much more as you see the day of the Lord Jesus coming again. Don't take lightly your son, your husband, your wife, your grandchildren. About Pastor, I prayed a thousand times. Keep praying for them. Put their name in our prayer box. Ask somebody else. Pray. Don't let anybody you love and care for. Because you know what? Money market accounts are not going to heaven. Furniture is not going to heaven. Cars are not going to heaven. Jewelry is not going to heaven. Plaques on the wall is not going to heaven. Nothing's going to heaven but the eternal soul of you and I and those we love. Don't stop loving and praying. Go ahead. Give the Lord thanks. Bow your heads, please. Pastor, I've heard the word today. And now, I don't want to delay another moment. I don't want to grieve the Holy Ghost. I don't want to grieve God. I don't want to make worthless the blood of Jesus Christ. And certainly do not want to assume it is well with my soul when I know it isn't. And as you pray this morning, would you include me? I will not call you up and embarrass you. I will not make you a spectacle by pointing you out. But pastor, maybe I just don't have it right just yet. And I don't want to risk not having it right. I want to be sure. And you said that the God who saved me is the God who will give me the power to keep on keeping on. I want to abide in Christ. Pray for me today. If that would be you, raise your hands now. Yes, thank you. Hold it up a moment. All, all over the church. Hold it up just a moment. Thank you. With the church, everyone in the church, would you repeat after me this prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy and your love and the sacrifice of your sinless life hanging on a tree on Calvary where you bled and suffered and died in my place. You, Jesus, took my sins and I thank you and today I confess that I have failed I have failed more times than I might remember wash me cleanse me fill me with you and Lord Jesus may my body become the temple of the Holy Spirit Today, Lord, with all that's within me, I rededicate my life to you, Lord. I place you, Lord, on the throne of my heart. Wash me, cleanse me, purge me from now on, even forevermore. Amen. Put your hands together and give him some thanks.